this is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. On today's show, we are continuing our A24 retrospective. This is our 13th edition of the series. You can go listen to episodes 205, A24 Obvious Child, 196, A24 Retrospective Lock, or go all the way back to 108, A History of A24 Films, to get the full backstory on the company. Today we are looking at 2014's The Rover, directed by David Michaud. The film stars Guy Pearce as a man who in post-apocalyptic Australia is trying to get his car back from some thieves and teams up with the brother of one of them, played by Robert Pattinson. Before we go deeper into the film, I want to get a bit of housekeeping out of the way. ContraZoomPod has now set up a coffee account, where if you like what we're doing, you can leave us a tip to help us produce the podcast. You can find a link in the show notes or on the main page of ContraZoomPod.com. I also want to welcome back to the retrospective series, Rachel, who missed the last one on Obvious Child. <laughs> do you have any quick thoughts on the movie? And what would you like to do? And what would you uh, have done as a double bill pairing if you were on the show? Um, I do like the movie. I, I agreed mostly with everything that you guys talked about on the podcast. Um, I'm not the biggest Jenny Slate fan, but I think that is one that I don't mind her in it. And I feel like not to say that this is a, about her. Like, I, I don't know if this is actually about her, but like the idea that she uses um, her personal life and her performance, like she does that quite a bit. So I don't know, maybe I'm a bigger Jenny Slate fan than I let on but I this is one thing that I, I don't mind her in um in terms of what I would have chosen for a double feature I was thinking along the same lines as you guys with the kind of abortion like movies and that kind of theme or you know Steph did the um what is it how how, how to be, be single, single yeah. I think is that mm-hmm. how to be single yeah but I actually decided Instead of going down that route, probably what I would want to watch after Obvious Child, and this is just me being a bit of a nerd, is um, as much as I don't really like this movie that much, but I think it's kind of neat to watch Gone with the Wind after because they finished with Gone with the Wind. And so the idea that you watch it afterwards, I thought that that's like a nice tidy (laughs) way of uh, finishing it up. It's not really anything to do with the movie other than they watch it, but. Yeah, I always like that that idea of watching the movies that they're watching That's in the movie. Interesting. I uh, I never thought about that one. Yeah. That's, uh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you were mostly on the same page. I would have been. I would have loved to have had you on that show to where we could all talk about. But you know, say la vie. Uh, but now that all that is out of the way, I want to welcome back to the show Matthew Simpson. Matthew is the host of the Awesome Friday podcast, where each week he and his co-host Simon review two new things, a show that Rachel has now guested on a few times. Uh, Matthew was last heard on ContraZoom back on episode 200, Movies That Made Us, where he left us a lovely voicemail about Jurassic Park. Welcome back to the show, Matthew. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me back. And in case I didn't say so in my voicemail, congratulations on 200 episodes. I actually totally forgot that until this moment. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I know as uh, as someone who's also recently celebrated their, their one year anniversary, you know that sometimes uh, these things you'd kind of do need to reflect on it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great time to look back at the things you've done and go, oh, I need to do this better. Um, <laughs> but Yeah. Now I'm uh, I'm happy that I was yeah. able to steal Rachel back from you since it seems like the two of you were plotting of uh, of maybe her joining <laughs> your show full time or something like that. I mean, I'd be down with that. She, you know, she's a great voice. She's very intelligent. She's very cool. Uh, and uh, we could use the third person on Awesome Friday. Just saying, yeah. it'll be like like in the Hangover with the three best friends. Let's not give yeah. Rachel's ego too much of a <laughs> boost here. Um, I got to keep her grounded. 
just gonna knock me down all the time anytime (laughs) (laughs) knock me down into my place only because you do that to me far too often (laughs) i mean that's what good friends do for one another so that's it's fine rachel considering we've only met in person once does that do can we call ourselves good friends I talk to you more than I talk to some of my actual real life good friends who I see, like who I have known for many, many, many years. I definitely talk to you more because we talk more or less every single week. Like, je- like actually talk to you, like not just texting. Yes. You know, like yep. I don't talk to all of my friends, like in, in, not in person, like even on the telephone. So take that, take with that what you will. Every week we have an hour long phone conversation. Basically, yeah. I mean, it's 2022. We're allowed to have friends who are mostly online. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Very true. I do appreciate your friendship, Rachel. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Before this, <laughs> before this gets any more awkward, uh, let's get this episode back on track and with our tradition of our A24 four questions. And since it is your first time on the A24 retrospective series, I want to hear your answers, Matthew. So the very first question. Yep. It's a biggie. What are your top three A24 films? Well, I refuse to rank them. So in no particular order, my favorite three A24 films are, and I, I poured over the list for a while uh, last night or night before last. And my top three are The Witch, Midsummer, and Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Nice and I say that confidently because I spent like an hour like going over the list and like moving stuff in and out of the top three. I mean, uh, for like honorable mentions, I mean, Ex Machina is up there. I, I adore the lobster, um, moonlight, uh, and also, uh, St. Maud, which I feel is a little bit, I don't know if it's actually slept on, but I, I really like it and I feel like nobody talks about it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the, the witch in midsummer in particular. And then this year, I think everything everywhere all at once is probably, the best movie of the year so far in my estimation. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair. Easy one to keep in the list. I just want to point out, you chose three films that are all female led films, Mm -hmm. which I noticed that too, actually. Yeah. That's just pretty cool. Um, Considering that a 24 gets like the reputation for being kind of film Mm bro-y, like a little film bro-y. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, but it's, it's art house film bro. So (laughs) that's true. (laughs) 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 um i would agree i think saint maude i think saint maude is slept on quite a bit i don't think it i and i don't know why maybe it was because it came to north america a little bit late like it kind of got caught in the weird um in the covid situation because i know it got released in the uk in 2019 but then it kept getting pushed back to get to north america so i wonder if it's because we weren't all on the same page at the same time about that movie, but I think it's really underrated though. I think it's amazing. Yeah. I think maybe that, that, and also I think when it did come to North America, I'm, if it had a theatrical run where I could have seen it, I don't remember that being an an option for me. Like, uh, it pretty much went straight. I don't think it was. I think, I think they just did a digital release. Yeah. And you know, that, that as much as I appreciate being able to watch movies at home, that does sometimes have like a cost in terms of like, fanfare right yeah uh, yeah yeah. and if i remember correctly when it did come out 
on digital. It wasn't like it was going to a streaming platform. It was going to like VOD services. So like, yeah. uh, you know, something like yeah, Prey popping up on Hulu in the US or Disney Plus here. It's like, oh, great. This is super easy. I already have Disney Plus. I can watch Prey. Whereas like in movies, like, oh, you have to, you know, log into your iTunes account or go into Amazon Prime and go to the section where you actually have to buy things and stuff like that. It's it's probably a lot easier to, to skip over a movie that's not instantly at your fingertips if it doesn't come out in theaters. Yeah, and or costs money at all. Yeah. Or extra money yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I, I like your top so, three. But it is a great movie. Yes. I, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really comment on it. I'm going to wait to watch it until we get to it, which is going to be several years down the line. But uh, I, I like your top <laughs> three. And I feel like uh, I, I'm gathering data for all the responses. And once we finish up the series or whenever I decide to do it, I'll, I'll release the data. And I'm pretty sure your three picks are probably going to be like three of the most common ones. Obviously, Everything Everywhere just came out, so it wasn't on the earlier ones. But it's now popped up, I think, on on two or three people's lists, including your own. And The Witch in Midsummer is basically on almost everyone. One, almost everyone has one of those movies on their list, if not both of them. So I, I think you have like what I would sort of consider the current top three A24 films. You just called yeah, Matthew I mean, a basic bitch, basically. There, no, I know. I don't. I don't know how to. I don't know how to feel about it. But you're saying I have good taste, so I'm going to choose to take it that way. Yes, I'm saying that your taste is lining up with the uh, rest of our esteemed uh, guests that are also movie lovers have also picked. I, I choose to interpret it that your esteemed guests have the same taste as me. Yes, they're all so. basic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on to question number two. What was your introduction to A24? Uh, so I was thinking about this question, and I don't really remember how the other people have answered it, but I have two answers for it. And if you're talking about just the first film that I saw that was an A24 film, the answer is Spring Breakers, which I saw in theaters when it came out in 2013. Uh, if we're... And that movie is nuts in the best way possible. I think Harmony Korine doesn't make many good movies, but that is one of them. Um, if we're talking about like, when did I start being like, Oh, a 24, I should start paying attention to this studio very specifically. Then the answer is um, the year 2016 in which the witch, the green, green room, the lobster Swiss army man into the forest and moonlight all came out, which I think is when we all started paying attention to a 24 Really, I mean, 2015, the year before, they had Ex Machina and Amy, which won an Academy Award, and Room uh, and Mississippi Grind, all of which are great films. But I think 2016 was the year that we all sort of went, "Oh yeah, well, this 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 place they have they have good taste. We should watch their movies." Yeah, I would say it, it it was basically in response to those 2015 movies because like I remember watching X Machina and loving it and I don't remember if I saw the logo or not. I, I probably did. And then it was like when a new movie came out, we'd be like, oh yeah, this is the distributor that also uh, handled X Machina. I was like, oh yeah, I, I like the that movie. And like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I recognize yeah. a couple of the other ones. So I think it. I think you're right that that's probably the timeline where most people became pretty cognizant of them in the sense of. I recognize their name and I'm going to purposely now seek out their movies. Yeah. And even like Ex Machina, I distinctly remember when Ex Machina and then the room noticing their logo and being like, well, I've seen that logo before and thinking about films like under the skin or a most violent year was one that I know I didn't actually really connect with, but I distinctly remember watching it in theaters. Um, 
and just remembering that they at least noticing that like these films all feel the same. Oh, and they have a same production company. That's interesting. Cause you know, we don't generally fawn over production companies the same way we do over say directors. So I think they have a, they, they occupy an interesting space in uh, the film world anyway. I always find that the interesting bit about a 24 and probably a thing that is people can be critical about a 24 is that, it is weird that we all get behind a company versus a single person because they do a wide variety of movies, but there, I think all of us can agree. There is like a certain vibe that a 24 movies have that we all enjoy, but it is weird that myself included, like that we all are so gung ho for a production company or distribution company. Like I, it doesn't, I guess Disney maybe is the only other one where a lot of people are like, Oh, Disney or Pixar. Like I want to watch the new Disney, the new Pixar, that kind of thing. But it's odd. It is an odd thing. I think that we, we love a, a corporate organization so much. Yeah. I only think it's weird because they're not necessarily the same sort of cultural superpower that Disney is like they're, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're a big movie company at this point, but they're not like, they don't own 40% of culture like Disney does. <laughs> um, you know, they, uh, but I think it's, you know, at least in terms of like the film Twitter of it all, I think we tend to buy into auteur theater, auteur theory. And you're right. A24 films all have a very uh, specific recognizable vibe and lots of auteur filmmakers make lots of different kinds of films, but still have a very specific and recognizable vibe to their films too. And I think it just holds true that way. You know, they tend to, you know, they produce movies and they acquire movies and they tend to, they seem to have a really good eye for movies that fit the vibe they want to put forward. And uh, I really like them for it, but you're right. It is weird that we love it. We love, you know, it's capitalism, but it's weird that we love this company so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and I think in the past, there have been people that follow the studios closely and, and distributors closely about what type of movies are released. <laughs> Obviously, this is like now getting into like a subsection of a subsection of our niche interest. But like, I remember in the past, you know, especially back in the 90s and 2000s, there's, there's the uh, producers that shall not be named where, you know, especially around Oscar season, you kind of had to pay attention to what they were doing and, and what movies they had coming out. And in recent years, you know, Bleecker Street was a, it was a pretty popular company. Uh, I know Neon, you know, we, we talk about Neon. They're sort of similar in the A24 milieu. And in the last year mm-hmm. or so, really seem that they've sort of been upping their game as far as what releases they've been getting. Uh, they already have a best picture, something um, that other studios don't have. I know, I know a 24 got it with, with moonlight, but um, parasite and neon was, was a sort of a real big boost for them. So I think we, as I said, like sort of there's a subject, subject, sub subsection of a subsection people, some people really do follow along with these different distributors and producers and things like that. And so there is that niche there, but it really is, you know, a 24 is, you know, the, the name brand of it all. Yeah. That's actually a good point about, uh, and I'm going to just go ahead and not name them, but Miramax in the nineties was definitely something that like you saw that logo and you're like, Oh, this is probably going to be good, (laughs) you know, or at least this is probably going to win some Oscars because they had a really good marketing team. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe it's not as new as we tend to think it is. Maybe it's only novel because the movies are more uniformly good. And probably amplified because of Twitter. Yeah, for sure. 
Got to remember film Twitter. It is an echo chamber. It, it really is. All right. Uh, let's move on to question number three. What director, dead or alive, would make a good A24 film? I thought about this question for a long time, and I was tempted to just be like Hitchcock, because I think Hitchcock would actually be a good answer. Um, but I was thinking about it, and you know who I think would make a really good A24 film is Jonathan Levin. But I hope I hope you're familiar with his filmography. You're going to yes, need to no. expand here. I'm quickly googling, but yeah. uh, you need to. So let me know. Jonathan Jonathan Levin is the guy who he often works with Seth Rogen. He directed Fifty uh, Fifty and Long Shot, mm. um, and The Night Before. He also directed the zombie rom com Warm Bodies, uh, and he also directed a couple of films. One film that I really like called The Wackness. And I don't think that he, like, he's definitely done some other stuff too. Like he did a movie called Snatched with Amy Schumer that is just kind of like, it's very broad and not that great. But if you think about films like The Wackness and about Fifty Fifty in particular, they definitely have that like very, and this is going to somewhat spoil my answer for the next question, but they, they do have that very sort of um, empathetic and heartfelt vibe that I often get from A24 films. I like that. I only ever watch 50 50. I only think I've watched 50 50 from him. I should watch Wackness is a terrific movie and I think would really sort of fit into the a 24 branding of uh, a big name star who is doing a very interesting and unique performance. And that's, you know, Ben Mm -hmm. Kingsley playing a stoner. Yep. (laughs) And, and honestly, like, I don't know that it would make a good a 24 film, but long shot is hilarious. Like it's a hilarious movie. Uh, and, but it also has a genuinely great performance from Seth Rogen and also from Charlize Theron and, you know, a director who can get good performances out of actors like that is someone who a 24 does well with. So, and like, yeah, uh, it's really, it's the wackness and 50, 50, 50, 50 occupies a special place in my heart for reasons I won't go into, but like, I, I adore that movie and it's exactly the vibe that I want from that kind of movie. And I would say that uh, even something like Warm Bodies, you know, we, we already did a, a podcast episode about it, but Life After Beth is a zombie romantic comedy as well. So yeah. they, they have that sort of history of doing similar things. Mm-hmm. And they have a slasher. He did a slasher. He did All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, which isn't the best movie, but you can definitely tell it's his. So and it's <laughs> it's it's a very gory slasher. Awesome. Well, I really like those an- that answer, uh, and and I don't think that's one that's ever going to be repeated. So I appreciate uh, coming up with a really original one. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and then the last question you you hinted at it already, but what makes an A twenty four film for you? Uh, for me, the answer is uh, empathy, which is kind of a cheat answer because you know movies are meant to be empathy machines, or you know they're they're things to make us feel things. But A twenty four films all have uh, a sort of very specific empathetic energy directed toward generally the protagonist of their stories. Um, but they you know, whether it's a horrendous horror movie or something a little more heartfelt, like everything everywhere, like all of their movies really hone in on the feeling that the, uh, the protagonists are going through. And I very much appreciate that. I, I like that, and and I feel that's a, a really solid way to word it that we also haven't heard from other people, and, and that's why I kind of like asking this question because everyone sort of dances around similar themes, but they all have their own interpretation of 
the way they view the movies that have come out by A24. So, so I like that you've kind of focused more on the sort of the, the earnestness that a lot of them have. Yeah. I mean, that's what movies are about, right? Like that's why I say it's a bit of a cheat answer because movies are meant to make you feel things, but a 24 films very specifically make me feel things. And sometimes (laughs) it's good and sometimes it's bad, but it's always very resonant. And I feel that that is important. Awesome. Well, there we have it. There are Matthew Simpson's answers to the A24 for questions. That looks good. Is this man your friend? Tell me where your brother is. He's going south, long way from here. I'll take you to him, I promise. Your brother left you to die. He's abandoned you out here to me. Now let's talk about the movie. The Rover is a film written by David Michaud and Joel Edgerton and directed by Michaud. The film was Michaud's follow-up to the Aussie crime drama Animal Kingdom, which was his first narrative feature-length film, which also starred Guy Pearce and Joel Edgerton. He has since gone on to direct War Machine and The King, both of which were Netflix releases. This movie stars Guy Pearce as Eric, who, while drinking in a karaoke bar, gets his car stolen by three thieves who get their truck stuck in a ditch. Eric retrieves their truck and sets off after them, but is unable to trade back their truck for his car. He stumbles upon Ray, played by Robert Pattinson, who is the brother of one of the thieves, left and presumed dead by the trio after a botched robbery. Eric takes Ray hostage, hoping he will lead him to the group, and most importantly, his car. Throughout the journey, they end up reluctantly bonding as Eric has no one left in his life and Ray feels betrayed by his brother and friends who didn't even see if he actually died before leaving him behind. The film premiered during the midnight section of the 2014 Cannes Festival before doing the festival circuit and being released in North America on June 20th, 2014. A24 acquired the film after it was shot but before it premiered back in 2013. The film's backers were shown a two-minute reel of the film and A24 snatched up the U.S. rights. This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode, so if you have not watched the film, we suggest doing so first. I think the starting-off point for our conversation should be that this was Robert Pattinson's first film post-Twilight, and despite him previously being in films like Cosmopolis and Water for Elephants, this film was really seen as his big breakthrough post-Twilight, and it slowly allowed him to gain steam to fully leave behind the Edward Cullen character to the point where he is now considered one of the most exciting actors working today. How did his deeply sad and empathetic performance work for you two? And did his accent work hinder your appreciation for his acting at all? Matthew, let's start with you. Uh, I thought he was good. The only thing that was distracting about his accent to me was that I thought it was a little weird that he was from the deep South when the movie set in Australia. Um, And also that um, he's meant to be brothers with Scoot McNary who I mean, I think he's trying, but he just does not have the same accent as his, quote, brother in the movie. So they didn't share a lot of screen time, so that's good. But uh, they, yeah, long story short, I thought he was good. I thought his accent was a weird choice, but I was sort of on board with it, except in those few scenes where he had to be on screen with uh, his, quote, brother. (laughs) Rachel, what about you? Um, The accent I thought was Fine. I agreed with Matthew, though, or I do agree with Matthew in present tense, that uh, it feels weird that it's 
um, is like a deep South accent in presumably Australia. But then the thing is though, watching, I, I watched it years ago and then I rewatched again in the last few days. Um, you can actually hear like everybody kind of has a different accent in the movie. Cause I think one of the original criminals, he has more of a South African accent. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Scoot McNary, I, I don't know what he's doing, but it's not a similar accent to what anyone else has. Uh, so I think we, I think that we may be made an assumption. No, but actually he at one point talks about Australian dollars. Yeah, so it's definitely Australia. In Australia. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I found it like I had always, I took it kind of the second time around watching it that because it's post apocalyptic, we have just an amalgamation of different people who ended up in this spot for some reason. Because one thing I like about the movie is like they do a good job of not, of not really explaining anything about how they got to this point and how the world got to this area. But um, in terms of Pattinson, I really like him in this. I went down like a weird rabbit hole with um, Pattinson after I realized he wasn't just the twilight dude. And I was like, Oh, he's actually a good actor. And so I like ended up crushing through his filmography. And this is one of the ones that I watched and uh, it's impressive. And I can imagine that if you were a really big twilight fan and it just like that franchise finished and it was such a big deal when it was done. And if you loved him, which so many people loved him, um, and you went to go watch like the next thing that he was in. And this was what you went to go see. You would probably be very either impressed or really surprised and just, and not in a good way. Like you'd kind of be like, Oh, I thought he would do more of not the glitter vampire kind of thing, but you'd think that he would be more like leading man kind of not this. Um, But I, I think that he, he, I think people talk about him Daniel Radcliffe and Elijah Wood in the same way in that they've all done their franchises and now they've picked up and just done really weird stuff, but they're really, really great at the weird stuff. Um, so I, I big fan of Pattinson, no matter what he does now. Yeah. I think that's a really good comparison to, to both Radcliffe and Wood because they, they really have all sort of taken the same trajectory. Obviously Elijah Wood was the one that really set it off. He didn't have the same, teen heartthrob status that both Radcliffe and Pattinson had but you can definitely see the parallels where they're like well I went from you know a billion dollar franchise what do I do next since I now have all the money in the world I don't know do stuff for me do stuff that's interesting and I almost feel like I I don't I don't know about you two I don't want to put words in your mouth but like you know, me, I would always think about like, if I was an actor and I got to choose what projects, I want to do the weird stuff, you know, the fun stuff that you don't see every day where like, as much as I, you know, really like, you know, a, a Tom Cruise or Denzel Washington or something like that, where I'm just like, you know, guys, maybe you should play a different character once in a while. Don't just play yourselves or Will Smith, like just play, do something different. You don't have to be the quote unquote leading man in everything you do. Now I know Denzel definitely does have a history of doing different stuff, especially earlier in his career. So that's maybe not so great of an example, but I, I hope you understand why I mean this sort of quote unquote leading actor where they sort of stick in their lane of like, this is what I'm good at. This is what people like. I'm, I'm sort of staying in it. And I, I really appreciate that Pattinson has done his damnedest to be like, I'm not going to be pigeonholed as Edward Cullen anymore. You know, I'm going to do a good time. I'm going to do a lighthouse. I'm going to be Batman. And that's not going to change anything about the rest of my career. So I really like where he's done. And, and it's sort of easy to look back 
at the rover and sort of see how that was the genesis of being able to to move forward because his character isn't particularly intelligent he's mocked for not being smart a few times in the film you know he kind of babbles a bit like a baby a couple times he isn't quite mature he's got a whole bunch of different things going on which i really appreciate this this depth that he brings to it and then there's like two scenes in particular that he really brings this well of emotion and really opens himself up and makes himself vulnerable that i I super appreciate it so overall i I really love it and i don't know this is me now being able to be like oh yeah i'm a fan of pattinson going back and appreciating it because i don't know if at the time if i would have seen it when it first came out if i would have maybe necessarily felt the same way you know i think an interesting just as a um, aside to what you're saying, like, I think one thing we also forget is that Robert Pattinson was working pretty steadily in and around the Twilight movies as well, in the same way that Daniel Radcliffe was in and around the Harry Potter movies. Um, so I think he was really, you know, they, they took the time to not do the same thing over and over at the same time. Um, because, like, you think about, like, I, I didn't connect with this movie, but I know lots of people do. Like, Cosmopolis came out before the last Twilight yes. movie. And Water for Elephants came out before the second to last Twilight movie. And those are both pretty big deals. And he did it just like a ton of indie and direct-to-video stuff in between there too. And I know Radcliffe did as well. And I think another really good comparison would be Natalie Portman, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from years ago. So I'm apologies, Natalie Portman. When you hear this, I'm sorry mm-hmm. that I'm so badly <laughs> paraphrasing you. But um I do remember very distinctly reading an interview with her where someone asked the interviewer asked her like, why do you do star Wars when you could do stuff like black Swan? And she was like, star Wars lets me do black Swan was basically her answer. Like every time I do, I do a big franchise movie and then I can do a bunch of other stuff that I want to do. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's a business. I get it. (laughs) You know, like it's a job and you gotta, you gotta take the, the big paying jobs to do the small paying jobs, I guess. That used to be a really popular quote from George Clooney back in the day. Clooney, I think he was the one that first said, like, one for them, one for me. And some people have turned on it a little bit to be like, just do what you want, man. You're George Clooney. Um, But it shows, like, even George Clooney felt like he had to do some some things that maybe he wasn't so into. Or, you know, hopefully he was – I don't know if he was into Batman. He probably wasn't. But, you know, he – has has always been able to do like the really big ticket stuff and then gone away and directed his little things and done, done his little movies. And that's arguably one of the biggest film stars that we have, especially for our generation growing up. Yeah. I mean, for every peacemaker, there's a good night and good luck, right? That's <laughs> exactly. just the way, the way it works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, so yeah, I really like Pattinson. I was a little confused by his accent. I, I wasn't sure what it was doing until I looked it up afterwards. I was like, oh, he's doing a deep South accent. Okay. That makes a bit more sense. <laughs> Mostly because for a lot of it, I couldn't really understand him. And that's probably actually a credit to his acting ability where I didn't need to understand all the words he was saying to understand what emotions he was trying to get across and how he was feeling. I think he, he was that strong of an actor in this film. Uh, but yeah, I, I just sort of assume that he was struggling with the Australian accent and that was the best he can kind of come up with. It wasn't <laughs> until later when I was doing the Wikipedia research and I'm like, Oh, he's from the deeps. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. Okay. I still don't understand what he said, but it makes sense what he was doing. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't like, remember. I like where that I read you this, thought but... he was 
Sorry, I was going to say, I like that you thought he was trying an American accent or an Australian Australia, accent, yeah. and this is what came yeah. out. Like, I, I enjoyed that you <laughs> thought that that's what was going on. I mean, there's rednecks yeah. in Australia, too, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can always tell an Australian accent because the last syllable goes up. You know, I'm going to shoot you in the head. You know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> very, very true. Wow. Uh, I was going to say, I've read somewhere, and I don't know how true this is, but I've read somewhere that lots of British actors do Southern American accents because it's easier for them. And I don't know how true that is, but it does sort of make sense that the sort of more sing-song nature of like a a deep Southern accent would, especially if you have a thick British accent, that makes sense to me. Yeah, probably doing a bit of a drawl and like elongating your words as opposed to like over enunciating your words like which not all british accents do but like if you're a proper british trained actor you obviously have that enunciation skill and and so probably being able to slow things down and and draw it out is probably why they are able to gravitate towards the southern accent yeah especially if you have like a you know if your natural accent is like say I don't know where Pattinson's from, but if it was like Welsh or Northern or Liverpool or something where it is a bit of a sing song accent, the, uh, the, the Southern drawl would, I think be like, it just feels as a person who badly imitates accents all the time. It's definitely an easier transition. (laughs) Well, you've already given one accent, so I'm hoping to do some more. (laughs) Well, there's one thing I know. There's one thing I know about doing accents and it's, you don't do it in front of the people who have that accent and Simon's (laughs) not here. So, (laughs) Um, one interesting about Pattinson I always found with his accent work is he said he's never used his natural accent in any movie. Like even when he's playing another British person, he won't, he's never used his actual accent, um, in, in any of his roles, which I thought was really interesting. That is really interesting. I wonder if, because he became, you know, famous fairly early on. Obviously, I think he was probably in his early 20s by the time Twilight happened, but he'd been acting for a while. I wonder if because he was young enough, he was able to sort of uh, mute his accent a little bit, kind of in the same way that I know Christian Bale had to relearn his accent because he spent so much time not speaking in in his native voice that maybe it sort of changed and he doesn't really have the same accent he probably used to. And it's true, you listen to him in interviews, and he doesn't sound like any character he's ever played, mostly because he's played Americans, but uh, but the few times he has done British roles, he doesn't he doesn't really sound like his, his normal speaking voice, and I wonder if that's almost a bit of a, a put-upon accent now to maintain his roots. I think that must be so weird for actors to, like, you don't even really know how you sound anymore, like, you don't have an actual speaking voice because you're messing it up with all these different accents that you're trying for different roles. I always think that that must be the weirdest thing in the world. I think it's a perfectly natural thing at the same time though, like not to harp on my podcasting partner, but he's lived in Canada for like 15 years. And when he goes home to the UK for any, like the time and comes back, he's basically unintelligible for about a week. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at just at that British accents, but like, you know, when they when him and his family come back from England, like my wife basically needs subtitles. It's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so continuing with the movie, Rachel, you sort of uh, touched on a little bit about this world that they inhabit. And I'd be sort of curious to, to hear your thoughts on 
how the world building actually works for, for the two of you, because we get very little information. And when we do get it, it isn't really a clear answer. Like, who is paying the military, the, the soldiers, and who is running the military, and for what purposes? And why do they not accept Australian dollars anymore, but they'll accept American dollars, even though conceivably society has collapsed basically everywhere? And how is the power grid still working? All, all questions like that that I was kind of thinking in my head as watching the movie, but it didn't necessarily distract me from anything. It just sort of was like, oh, I noticed that they're adding these touches to the world that they live in and inhabiting, and I appreciate that they're they're sort of adding these things, but it's never really given any sort of clear explanation of how it all sort of works. So I was wondering... Was any of that a hindrance or distraction, or did it just sort of help you get immersed into this world? I I like the ambiguity. I, I think it, oddly, I feel like it helps make the world a bit more complete, because I think that when you try to fill in those details, that's when it will fall apart a little bit more, because logically, maybe some things just don't make sense, whereas you leave it really broad, then there's because there's just so many question marks, nothing can really puncture the world building as it were. Um, So I much prefer that for a movie like this to just leave it really vague, leave it up to the audience to decipher however we want to interpret it. Um, Whether or not we kind of go really deep into this is why we think it happened, or you just leave it and say, I'm fine accepting the fact that I have no idea what the hell's going on. And I'm more that like, I'm fine not knowing why the world is the way it is and it helped me sink into it much easier though and much better uh yeah i'm with you and for one reason and that is that to the story the reasons the world collapsed don't matter that that the world that the world is collapsed is definitely a part of the story but the how and the why don't actually matter it doesn't impact anyone in the story at all so i kind of appreciate that they left it out because it it doesn't matter it's just, you know, if you, you, you could put that stuff in and it would just be in a, and we'd be complaining about an exposition dump yeah. is what would be happening. Right. Like Absolutely. the, uh, like, why did the world collapse? Who cares? Like, why do they accept uh, American dollars and not Australian dollars? Well, maybe the American economy didn't collapse quite so much, but the answer is it doesn't actually matter. It's a good point. Like, I feel like in a lesser movie or a lesser version of this movie, you would have one character who is kind of like the is is the audience right like they play the tourist role that everything is going to get explained to them um in terms of like hey what like what's going on like oh they just woke up from a coma or something and they need yeah. the whole world explained to them or something like that yeah so i think in a lesser version of this movie that definitely um probably would have would have been the case I mean, a lesser version of this movie probably would have started with like a voiceover at the start being like, it's 2017, <laughs> the world's economies have collapsed. That's very true. You know, like, <laughs> and, and I feel like we we almost get Michaud winking at us a little bit because there there's a scene in the movie where um, Guy Pierce has to fill up his his truck with gas and he goes to buy and they're like, oh yeah, it's $50, $50 for gas. And he goes, all right, cool. He goes, no, American dollar. He goes, it's all paper. None of this really matters anymore. What are you talking about? Who cares if it's Australian or American dollars? And he's like, nope, American dollars only. Only, And like, there's a bit of an argument. You're like, yeah, this is really stupid. Why are they only accepting American dollars? And then all of a sudden, Pattinson pulls up and he pulls out this giant wad of American cash <laughs> in his wallet and like just starts throwing it around because it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's paper money. And you sort of realize that like, oh, this money, he probably like we, we see at the beginning of the movie, there was some sort of 
we're led to believe that there's some sort of botched robbery or something like that, and that's how Pattinson ended up getting shot and left for dead, that sort of thing. And that's probably where he got this wad of money where, you know, it really doesn't matter. You go into any abandoned building and the first thing you do is you, you pop open the cash register and you go, oh, yeah, look, there's a couple hundred dollars in cash here. Great. I can now use this as currency. But then you, you start thinking of the machinations of it all. And it's like, yeah, it really doesn't matter. Why don't you why are you not trading, you know, useful goods for other useful goods? The sort of original bartering system before currency replaced whatever we were trading for. But I, I think Michaud does wink at the audience a little bit and be like, yeah, I know it's a little ridiculous, but, you know, this is the world that these people live in. I mean, not to be that guy, but the uh, the real reason why they probably accept American dollars and not Australian dollars is for that scene. So Robert Pattinson can show up and be like, I have a bunch of American dollars and it can show that they are bonding. Yes. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's the reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and do you believe th- this is something that is not really discussed in the movie at all? I, I If I'm remembering correctly. Do you believe that Robert Pattinson and Scoot McNary's character came to Australia before the apocalypse happened or afterwards? I don't care. Really? Okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't matter. Okay. It was just one of those I, I don't believe it questions has... that I thought of. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't begrudge you the question. I just don't think the answer matters. Like, as with the collapse of the world, all that matters is that they are there. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, functionally speaking, after. they uh, functionally speaking, I would say that maybe they came before because if they yeah. if America's economy hasn't collapsed as much, then why would you go to the more depressed place? But I mean, uh, functionally, it doesn't matter. So it doesn't. Yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really like that question because it got me kind of thinking. I I think. I would like to think anyways that they have come after. And the reason for that is something really shitty happened in America. And mm-hmm. that kind of leaves a whole other set of questions of like, what does the rest of the world look like? In a sense, your question, Dakota opens up the world of mm-hmm. what happened in every other country. And um, why is it that they're in Australia, you have a variation of accents going on there right now. Like what's, so what happened to the rest of the world that made Australia somehow the, no offense to Australia, I'm not saying that they couldn't be the last ones to survive, but it's like, why, why Australia? Why did Australia be the one to survive in a sense? Yeah, that's actually, that's a good question. I'm, I'm sort of with, I'm with you. I'm more with you now on that. Like, sure. That's, <laughs> if you want to dig in, if you want to dig into the world, like what did happen in America? Why would anyone want to leave that in a post-apocalypse? But the answer to that might also just be like, there's a lot of guns in America and shit's going to go south really fast. So yeah. I don't know. I, I, you know, it, the the more I sort of think about it, I think the rationale, you know, other than it being a plot device, the use of American money, it's it's sort of similar to, you know, a lot of countries. You can go anywhere in the world, and basically everyone in the world will accept American money as is. Like it's 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 basically a tender that is pretty much good everywhere. the The closest thing after that would be the British pound. Um, so much so that like. Some countries don't even make their own currency. They just, you know, American dollars is their currency. That's just what it is. And so I, I think maybe that's probably what it is. I, I, I don't have any sort of a deeper thought or, or reasoning behind it. Uh, but that that's sort of where my mind drifted to a little bit. Hmm. That's interesting, though. I, I like that kind of question. Yeah. Good. Well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I if I did have to point out a, a minor flaw in this movie... Uh, 
I feel like gun dealing 101 is if you're trying to sell guns, <laughs> uh, don't have the guns loaded when you're selling them. Yeah, that's, and, and that's excellent feedback. The guy, yeah, and you're like watching the dude load the gun at, yeah. like right in front of your eyes. You're just like, yeah, you get, that's how much it costs, man. Yeah, and then also, yeah, don't be, a, don't, be a, don't be a dick about it while you're doing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> All valid points. I know you're pointing a loaded gun at me, but it's still $300, okay? <laughs> yeah. I did like that scene. Like, I, it's, it's a bit weird, but I did actually like that scene. Because, I mean, the 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 shot kind of comes out of nowhere. And yeah. maybe not nowhere, but, like, it definitely hammers home that, like, oh, Guy Pierce is a man with whom not to be fucked. And also, like, totally willing to just straight up murder someone to get his car back. And it does really sort of set the tone and the stakes for, you know, the protagonist of the film. So I do, I do kind of like that scene, but to your point, yeah, I mean, don't, don't <laughs> let your customer load the gun and then be an asshole to him while he's doing it. Like it doesn't, that's just bad business practice. Now we, we learn later in the movie that he's probably ex army, but it's not, you know, super clear about it, why he is so good with guns uh, to the point where he's able to use a small rifle that's used on farms to basically pick off three people from basically a sniper's distance, more or less. Uh, but it's sort of an interesting characteristic of Guy Pierce's character that he's really, really good with weapons, yet he starts the movie off without any weapon and he chases down these thieves with his car, hoping to get back his car. And he's willing to uh, try to physically intimidate them, even though they have guns pointed at him. It's just sort of a an interesting occurrence of, is this his philosophy? You know, we've, we've all sort of seen the, the trope of the of the guy who doesn't like guns because when he gets them, you know, he does really bad things with them. He's much more proficient with firearms than you're led to believe, all this sort of stuff. Is this a sort of, trope that we believe guy pierce's character is equipped with or is it just you know a matter of storytelling that because guns are scarce and expensive and hard to find at the beginning he doesn't have one and he later needs to acquire one sort of thing i i don't know about the the part about him needing to acquire one you know in terms of like the writing i think it's pretty much what i said before like that was a good opportunity to show how far he's willing what he's willing to do in terms of why he's so good with guns, I do think he actually mentions at one point that he's ex-military and also that he's been a farmer. And as a person whose grandparents and great-grandparents were farmers, do you know who's really good with guns and usually has a lot of guns? Farmers. <laughs> so um, that, the, that he's good with a gun is no surprise to me um, because I, I think that's pretty well stored, uh, sorted out. And why he doesn't have one, I mean, maybe he does and it just wasn't with him in the car. Maybe it's in the car. Maybe it's in the glove box and nobody checked. I think I took it more as, I don't think I ever questioned why he didn't have a gun at the beginning. I think it just kind of was, this guy is off on a a separate mission that gets interrupted by these criminals coming through and stealing his car. But he was, he was about to do something else. And from that, you can kind of glean that he's not in a great headspace. Um you know, mm-hmm. and there's bits of his story, his background, where he talks um, to the military guy about how, you know, he killed his wife and the her lover, like he and nobody was looking for him. So he has, and and even in the scene we were just talking about, where he shoots um, the the guy trying to sell him a gun, 
it's like he you can see in him he has a very exasperated way about him where he just doesn't care anymore almost like he really doesn't give a shit whether he lives or dies the reason that he's going on this particular the reason he cares in this particular instance like when we catch him in the movie is because he is on he is on a mission right like he is trying to bury are we like I, I, I think that's are. a that's a super spoiler that if we can avoid that part that's <laughs> fair enough that part. so okay so like he he is on he is on his own separate mission and i think because that gets interrupted that's why he cares all of a sudden but it just he he strikes me as a man that really doesn't care anymore like he doesn't he doesn't care about protecting himself um which you know now that i think about it maybe that's why he doesn't have a gun on him altogether or maybe matthew's right and he does have one but we just never saw it i mean that he's a man with who doesn't care i think is a hundred i mean even the tagline for the movie is uh was it fear fear the man with nothing else to lose i mean i think that's he uh yeah he he clearly doesn't have any care for what actually happens to him at this point but that's not going to stop him from trying to finish the task he's trying to do and you know that that the car is so important to him even without the thing we were nearly about to spoil revealed at the end like you can just glean that like maybe that maybe the car is the last thing he has you know like there's that's yeah and uh yeah i think i you know i really love guy pierce he really manages to in the in these scenes we're talking about in particular, he really does manage to be both completely dead-eyed, <laughs> but also yeah. like strangely relatable. Like mm-hmm. when he chases down the three criminals in their crashed up truck and just faces them down with the weapon, and he's like, I want my I want my car back. <laughs> just yeah, dude. I, you do want your car back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I almost feel like Guy Pierce has the career that Brad Pitt wishes he had. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I'm going to need you to expand on. I like. I don't disagree, but I'm going to need to hear your reasoning on that. So, so Brad Pitt has often, you know, considered himself a character actor in a leading man's body, as we've seen. He he often tries to do these weirder characters where he he disappears under either uh makeup you know crazy different looks things like that he's he's even worked with david michaud later in war machine where he looks very different he's he's sporting like a a gray toupee sort of thing and a very different build that he normally sort of sports but he he often has has tried to be you know the the weird character the, the unpredictable explosive character and he's definitely done that tons of time in his career but he's also more often than not been the handsome leading man eye candy sort of thing even if he does have a bit of an edge to a lot of his characters and i feel like guy pierce has you know if you if you look at guy pierce on a red carpet you know he is a, a very traditionally very handsome movie star esque look to him and then you watch him in a movie like this and and you almost can't imagine that they're the same person. Obviously, a lot of it has to do with with makeup, with the the clothes that he wears, with the, the way he presents his his self. But he, he sort of carried that through his entire career. He he often looks very differently. The sort of the, the Gary Oldman aspect. Gary Oldman very much is the prototypical character actor. He's never been the leading man 
And and I know Brad Pitt has sort of wanted to be that character actor, but he can't because he gets typecast as the beautiful guy, which you know, oh, woe is him, sort of thing. But uh, <laughs> just me making a you know a, a bit of a, a joke at the expense of Guy Pierce is the career that he wish he could have had if he wasn't so handsome. Guy Pierce is a handsome man too. He's a good looking man. Mm-hmm. He's not mm-hmm. Brad Pitt. Let's be honest. But yeah, I mean, they could both get it right. Like I don't think there's any <laughs> disputing that. <laughs> Plus, Guy Pierce gets extra points because he has an accent. That's just a real thing. I always forget he's Australian. Like, I always think Guy Pierce is British. I think it's because his name is Guy. He looks very <laughs> British dapper sometimes, but I forget all the time. I'm sure he has British blood in him, but like, I always am shocked when I hear him open his mouth and speak and an Australian accent comes out. And I he think that he was putting actually on a role born that- in England. Oh, was he? Oh, interesting. Yes. Yep. Yeah, his father is Kiwi and his mother is British, and he was born in England and then moved to Australia when he was two. Hmm. Not far off then. Yeah. And his wife is Dutch. It's interesting. <laughs> I was going to say I'm the same way, except with Kate Blanchett. I always forget that she's Australian. Yes, I forget oh, that yeah. too. Actually, I forget she's she's Aussie all the time. But uh, but yeah, Guy Pierce. You know, other than maybe something like uh, Memento, or or even maybe something like L.A. Confidential. Memento, obviously, you know, he's he's a sort of very ripped, wiry guy, but he's very weird, and it's a very weird small movie. Obviously, it's grown in stature, but at the time when it came out, L.A. Confidential, he he's you know kind of traditionally handsome looking, but he's also this very much a square, so he, that kind of plays off of his his character archetype there a little bit but yeah he despite him being you know very traditionally handsome doesn't sort of have that you know uh career of leading man roles hmm. but i don't know that's yeah. just a, a a little thing that i sort of i sort of noticed with him he definitely wasn't necessarily like as shoehorned into it as guys like brad pitt or a more recent example might be uh like ryan reynolds who are like like oh you have piercing eyes and a square jaw like let's make you the hero of a dozen generic movies and he didn't get that quite as bad yeah do you guys think it might be because oddly guy pierce really doesn't look american like you would never look at him and and kind of think of him as an american like where's brad pitt i mean what does it mean to look american like that i know that's a very odd thing to say um but it's like i i can look at brad pitt and Ryan Reynolds and Ryan Gosling even, and be like, they're quite North American looking people. I was going to say two of those people are Canadian. Yeah, they're Canadian. They have that look of being from here. Whereas Guy Pearce, he really look like, and same with Tom Holland, like they really look, they have a British look to them Hmm. um, that I, I I can't really put my finger on why they look like that or like what, what the deal is, why I think that, but I wonder if that's why, because Guy Pierce can look kind of evil-ish as well. Not to say the British are evil, although, I mean... They you could can say be. that's fine. <laughs> Strong it's, argument for the British being evil. They, I mean, um, they, they certainly were, uh, whether yes, they are. Is there everybody. was a time. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, maybe that's why, because Guy Pierce has a bit more of a cynical look, whereas Brad Pitt doesn't, naturally speaking, he does not have a cynical look to him, especially when he was younger in the 90s. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. think that's a fair observation. Yeah, I think you just got to imagine, like, if you imagine the, the the council of people in your head, like an inside out, which one is in control? And uh, 
with Brad Pitt, it's probably joy. And yeah, with Guy Pierce, it kind of feels like it might be anger. So yeah, you might be right. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, before we before we move on to our games, do, do either of you have any sort of last things that you want to bring to the table to discuss? Um, I want to bring up the score on oh, the film. I loved it. I loved it so, so, so much. And I was like, this is why I like watching movies more than once because sometimes, I, I don't know if in the first time if I really thought about the score, um, but this time around when I was watching it, like the score really, really stuck out to me as something that I really loved. And it's uh, it's done by an Australian composer. His name is Anthony Par- Partos, Partis. apologies if I said your name wrong, because um, you're obviously going to listen to this. Uh, but it's I, I loved it. It just it was so moody. It was perfect at accentu- accentuating different moods within the film and it just tied everything together so so nicely and so i wanted to mention that hmm. i was going to mention the score so we're good now <laughs> excellent yeah i i really love the the score too and you know it's, it's not very often where that's you know mid movie being like I'm, I'm really digging this music who did this yeah. and i'm gonna i'm gonna throw a name out there i know rachel's not gonna get it i don't know if you will or not matthew but uh, the, the music sort of reminded me of a canadian band called godspeed you black emperor where they, oh, yeah. they are are you familiar with their work yeah, I don't listen to them, but I definitely know them. Okay, so they're they're an instrumental group. They they mostly do uh, what's called uh, post rock or drone music. It's you know long sustained notes, very dissonant, uh, off sounding at times, but then can also hit those moments of of bliss and beauty. In watching this movie, I was like. I know it's an Aussie movie, but like, did, did anyone involved with Godspeed You Black Emperor do the music in this? Because it sounds like it could be perfectly in place with one of their albums. And obviously it's not, uh, but I still found a, a connection there that I really appreciate. And one that I was like, oh, I'm really, I'm really sort of digging the vibe that this music is adding to this movie. It's, it's making it, you know, it's, it's creating the post-apocalyptic world that we can see on screen. There, we get the tension, we get the unease, but there's also sort of a little bit of comfort in, you know, just accepting your fate and that sort of thing. It's out there, just not that out there. I dig it. It's a good comparison. I should definitely listen to more of God's Fleet You Back Over, but yeah. I recommend it for you. I don't recommend it to Rachel. <laughs> I, I yes. couldn't even repeat the name of the band to you right now. Like, I can't. <laughs> That's a really long band name. And also, yeah, yeah. I've heard of them before, so... Their album titles are I'm sure even they're longer. great. I'm sure they're great. Yeah, their album titles are insane. I would say one thing, I, I mean, just to touch on just very briefly, because I was going to talk about the score a little bit, but um, I do really appreciate that Joel Ed- Edgerton, Edgerton, I can't remember pronounce his name. Um, I do really like that he's not, like he's out there like writing movies and directing movies and stuff beyond just acting, because I think he's a really interesting performer, but I think he's actually a really interesting writer too. And I don't think I've seen a film that he has written that I didn't like which is uh, an interesting thing to say about, I think, about a guy who's predominantly known for acting. I 100% agree with that. Not that I think that he's a bad actor by any stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. Movie, him as an actor, I'm not a massive fan of. Like, I don't gravitate towards his work as an actor. But if I see that he had something to do with either the writing or the directing, then I'm more 
I'm more willing to watch it than if you tell me like, oh, it's a new Joel Edgerton movie. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. If it's good, it's good. But like, if you say that he wrote something or he directed that, I I think he's really interesting um, behind the camera. Yeah, I think he's a really interesting writer in partic- in particular. Mm-hmm. Like between uh, between this and the Gift, which were like only a year apart, I think yeah. are two super interesting movies. And I actually really liked, and he acted in this as well. But I actually really liked The King, Me too. Uh, which was a Netflix release. And it's interesting because. And I think in a lot of cases with his movies, I didn't, I didn't really connect with the King in a meaningful way the first time I watched it. But every time I've watched it since, I'm like, yeah, this is a great movie. With a really funny Pattinson cameo, actually. Oh, God, so, so good. good in it. He's so good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and also directed by Michelle. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the connection there. All right. Well, uh, I think that sort of wraps up our our discussion on this film. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to play our games. So we are back now, and as always, we've got two games we like to play in this A24 retrospective series. The first one is our double bill pairing. You can pair it with any movie you like. The only stipulation is it cannot be another A24 film. Matthew, as our guest, I'd love to hear what is your choice and the reasoning behind it. So I had to think about this a lot to make a double bill with this movie, but I think ultimately the film I'm going to go with is the... 2005 Australian Western John Hillcoat directed the proposition. Have either of you seen the proposition? I have not. Yes. XL. So first off, (laughs) watch the proposition. It is so good. Um, It is a Western. It is uh, Australian set and made It's directed by um, John Hillcoat, who is Canadian Australian. um, And it stars Guy Pierce, uh, as the uh, how to explain this without spoiling too much of it, the, um, the basic setup is that Guy Pierce is in a gang, like a Western style like gang, and he's captured by the local sheriff, who's played by Ray Winstone, and he's given the choice. He has two brothers, one, a younger one and an older one. The older one is played by Danny Houston, and Danny Houston is like the gang leader, and he's a psychopath, and. Uh, Guy Pearce and his younger brother, and I'm just saying his younger brother because I can't remember the name of the actor off the top of my head. Um, Ray Winstone basically says, you can either go after your brother or I can execute your other brother. And so it is Guy Pearce looking for his brother in a super dry and very sweaty Australian. It's in a lot of ways. It's, it very much matches up with like the feel of this movie. That sort of like grimy, sweaty feel. Um, but also like it's Guy Pierce looking for his brother. It's, it's, you know, the, the parallels are there. That's what I'm trying to say. And I can't believe you haven't seen it. It's so good. It's such a good movie. It's one of my, it's actually legitimately one of my favorite Westerns. 
Oh, check wow. it out. Never, I've never even heard of it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, uh, John Hillcoat is Canadian, so a good connection there. But like Guy yeah. Pierce, Ray Winstone, Emily Watson is in it. Um, not Emma Watson, Emily Watson. Danny Houston, uh, David Wenham, John Hurt is in it. Um, Leah Purcell is in it. Noah Taylor is in it. Um, it's so good. It's such a, it's, it's very bleak. Like, don't get me wrong. This would be a very bleak double feature. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a very good movie and I recommend it to, uh, I can't recommend this movie enough. I recommend it to everyone who's like, what's a, what's a good movie? What's a good Western? I'm like, you should watch this Australian one because it's really good. Interesting. I'm uh, I'm a pretty big John Hillcoat fan. Uh, first off, I didn't realize he he grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, which is uh, just down the road from where I was was born and where I grew up. Uh, but yeah, I, I like John Hillcoat. The Road is a. <laughs> you mentioned the proposition being bleak. The Road is probably one of the bleakest post apocalyptic movies I've ever seen. And I was a huge fan of Lawless. I know that movie was pretty mixed when it came out, and there are its defenders. I am one of them. I am a Lawless truther. Uh, that also incredibly <laughs> creepy guy Pierce. Yep, I actually I know uh, that not a lot of people like it, but I actually really like Triple Nine as well. Oh, I hated that one. Yeah, that that got me off the <laughs> train real fast. <laughs> Rachel, now it's your turn to share your pick. Now, are you going to go super obvious, <laughs> or are you going to go a little bit more obscure and and go off the board with your pick? I, I don't think it's an obscure movie, but I'm I'm not doing the obvious one. And I mean, without I, I I can't say it without spoiling the thing that we don't want to spoil. But I don't like I really don't think of that movie when I think of the rover. Like I don't find them to be related in many off that. Anyways, I'm gonna move on. My pick. Is, <laughs> <laughs> my pick is uh, another Robert Pattinson movie, and it's Life. Uh, and it was directed by Anton Corbin and it was Pattinson and Dane DeHaan. Um, the reason I'm going with this movie is not because they're related in any way, shape or form other than they both star Robert Pattinson. And I, I feel like, I don't think that there's many people out there who still, um, are detractors of Pattinson and uh, who, what his abilities are as an actor and kind of, we we've talked about this already, but in case there are, and I, the reason I say it's life, well, actually I wanted to choose high life. Um, but then I realized <laughs> I didn't know that that was an A24 movie. So yeah. I had to go back and pick another one. Um, but like I said, at the beginning of this episode, I went down like a Robert Pattinson rabbit hole when I realized he was actually a really good actor. And his filmography is super, super interesting. He's done some really amazing work that um, we've talked about already. Uh, so for me, for the double feature, I kind of thought if you aren't already on the Pattinson train of he's actually pretty effing good, go continue down his filmography. Thing is, he's done a lot of A24 movies, which is kind of funny. Um, but I really enjoy the movie Life, actually. I think it's very under... I know that people weren't too big on it they're kind of mixed on it um i really enjoy it it's one that i've rewatched many many times and it's about i didn't even say what it's about it's about the uh last james dean cover shoot that was for life magazine and pattinson plays the photographer uh dennis stock and dane dehan plays james dean um so it's just about them getting that photo spread together basically in the story and the profile that he that came out i think posthumously after 
um, he passed away. So yeah, that's my pick. So it's not, it's not obscure, but it's not in keeping with the theme of the movie per se. Interesting. Yeah. I remember when that movie came out and I, I was curious by it, but I never ended up seeing it. So that's a, that's a very interesting pick. I actually don't think I've seen it either. Guys, it's a good one. I I believe you. (laughs) And it's got old school cameras. So anybody who's into old school cameras like me, they have like old, um, Oh shoot. What's that? What's that one camera? It's not a Leica. I'm thinking Leica because of. Do you think about a Rolleiflex? I can't remember. Anyways. Uh, or a ha- Hasselblad, maybe? I know, but the, it's like they do the cool like 50s aesthetic, which I always really enjoy. And Pattinson's great in it, just as he's great in pretty much everything that he does. So, yeah. It was just one of those moments for me of like realizing I'm an idiot and actually he is not just a vampire. He is so much more than a vampire. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah. So in case anyone out there who still thinks that he's just a vampire, though I think after Batman, nobody really thinks that anymore. Even though that character's kind of a vampire? Yeah, but he was like emo vampire, you know? Yeah. And I guess you could argue was was um what was the what's the Twilight character's name? Edward is he, Cullen. Uh, Edward. Is he, is he emo in that? He's yes. like I feel like they're all right? emo. Yeah, he's kinda that. emo. Yeah. But you know what my hot take about Pattinson and uh um Kristen Stewart is? Mm-hmm. They've both been good actors the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I think I like I've seen I think I've only ever seen one clip of Twilight, which is the baseball clip from one of the movies. Um, I don't I like you're right, like Pattinson and Stuart, they've always been good. And you don't just all of a sudden become a good actor. Like, I think that you've always probably been one. And um, even the best actor in a franchise that people really didn't want to like. Well, and I was going to say, like, I mean, lots of people love Twilight, but even the best actor can't save horrendous material. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah i will say uh, not to go too far off track but the big superhero fight at the end of the last twilight is legitimately amazing and probably the best x-men film fight put to film ever do with that information okay. what you will <laughs> it's it's funny because i know jeff from classic movies live is a big uh twilight truther that he thinks that they're they're there are uh actually not bad um and he defends them a lot so there are other defenders out there uh all right uh i i guess before i i say my pick it's i just think it's really funny i'm not going to reveal what the title is but i i messaged both rachel and matthew what saying oh i wonder if someone's going to pick the obvious double bill pairing and neither of you knew what movie i was talking about which was pretty (laughs) funny on the surface uh i'm not going to reveal it uh matthew you had another obvious choice and that was mad max fury road uh or no 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 no. mad max one very specifically mad max one okay sorry my apologies um which yeah you know australian post-apocalyptic Apocalyptic. I don't know why I can't say that word today. Post-apocalyptic movie. Uh, it, that that is a, a a good idea for a double bill pairing uh, of itself too. But I, I just thought it was funny that I thought of one that would be super obvious, and neither of you thought of it, and couldn't figure out what I was talking about uh, at first glance. <laughs> I mean, it might be because of the way you described it. Because I'd actually, in my I like wrote a bunch of notes while I was watching the movie, and the movie that you're about to talk about. Uh, is definitely in my notes as one of like my double bill options. <laughs> so. Interesting. 
Okay. Uh, well, uh, my double bill pairing, uh, you know, the Rover was Robert Panton's first film post Twilight, and it sort of marked him as an actor that you can't ignore. His Twilight co-star, Kristen Stewart, also tried to immediately put the vampire franchise behind her. Uh, but was a bit less successful in convincing audiences to accept her, unfortunately. Two years after Breaking Dawn Part 2 came out in 2012, she was in, um, she was in an Olivier Osseas film, but I have not seen that one, so I can't compare it. But in 2016, she reunited with Osseas in Personal Shopper, uh, a movie that sort of allowed me to personally forget the Twilight series and consider her one of the strongest actors working today. So that is my double bill pairing is Personal yeah. Shopper. That's an excellent I've choice. I've seen that. I like the I like yeah, I like the theory behind it. It's somewhat similar to mine, but I actually haven't seen Personal Shopper. I've heard really good things about it though. Personal Shopper was one of my favorite movies in whatever year it was that it came out. I don't remember what year that was, but I remember it being in my top 10. I think it's 2017, yeah, I, it's 2016, right? 2016? 2016. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it, an excellent. It's, film. it's a very interesting movie because it's uh, this woman dealing with with grief after her brother dies, and she's kind of stuck in a job she doesn't really care for. And then all of a sudden, the movie kind of does a pretty hard left into full on horror movie. Uh, I, I don't want to reveal too much if, if people haven't seen it, but it's definitely like they, they obviously market it as this type of movie. But it's just sort of interesting that the tonal shifts. And she does what we now really know Kristen Stewart when she's at her best does is she doesn't talk a lot. She just kind of emotes and we sit there with the camera on her face and we see her mostly blank stare, but it still sort of conveys a lot of emotion and feeling that she doesn't need to speak the words to get across how she's feeling. And that's really, you know, become her trademark, you know, highlighted by Spencer this past year, finally getting her an Oscar nomination. But I feel like Spencer was the point much like, you know, maybe the lighthouse was for some people where they're kind of finally able to get over the fact that these actors were in twilight. And it's like, yeah, they, they had a career and now they're trying to do different things for me. Seeing certain women was the first one, but she didn't really have a big enough role in that movie for, for me to want to compare it. and, and following that up with, um, with personal shopper where I was really blown away and be like, no, I, I really have to take this actor seriously. Mm-hmm. I think I'm that with you. was um, the Diana movie for me, Spencer. That was for me. Like that was when I realized, oh, Kristen, because I don't. I think that was actually the first movie I've ever really seen her in. Actually, now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen her act in anything before. But I, I had a lot of. Uh, I mean, I had a lot of like prejudice and bias towards her um, because of nothing to like nothing substantial or anything like that and it's just me being dumb but yeah I, spencer was the first thing that i ever saw her in that um and and i thought she was good i thought she was good and i kind of get where people are coming from saying like it's not fair and i think there is like i mean not on this podcast or on this episode but there is an interesting discussion to be had about like why both if you compare pattinson and stewart how their careers kind of they're both taken seriously now, but it took a lot longer for Kristen Stewart to get that recognition than it did for Robert Pattinson. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting topic, but we won't get into that now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ingrained societal sexism, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, more or less. All right, let's, uh, let's move on and, and keep things uplifting and moving along and play our, would you rather question? So Matthew, uh, what is your, would you rather for us? 
So I actually don't feel like I came up with the greatest question for this, but uh, in the post-apocalypse, which we're all headed toward, would you rather it be a desert or a deluge? This question inspired by a recent rewatch of Waterworld. <laughs> Rachel? Um, I'm going to go with the water option. I'm not great in heat. I don't really like, and I feel like at least there's water. You can cool down a little bit. Although at the same time, I'm not great with water. I can swim, but I'm not the strongest swimmer. Um, I mean, this, this question doesn't actually have a good answer. Like, they're, yeah, they're both sure. bad. There's, there's no, there's no good one. I think I, I'd prefer the water option though. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't do, I can't do desert with like the sun beating down on you and you have no shade. And I presume I probably don't have a hat or water access because I like drinking a lot of water as well. Well, that's true, but if you're on a boat, you have the sh- maybe you have shade from the sail, but you're also surrounded by water you can't drink. That I would, yeah. But at least you can like kind of dip your face into it, and hmm. I don't know something. But I, yeah, I'd probably go water. I, I think I'm on the same page uh, as Rachel. I am. I am a bit of a strong swimmer, so that sort of works in my favor. But yeah, the the idea of like being in a desert and like your lips being so chapped because yeah. you have the sun beating down and the dust flying in your mouth and you, and you can't get any water to sort of parch your, your, your thirst there. And it just sort of never ending day after day. You're literally your, your sole focus is I need to find water or else I'm going to die where that is the only thing that you can focus on. I think that would sort of be my concern. And obviously, like you said, like if you're in the ocean, you can't drink the ocean water, but I feel like you can sort of better utilize the tools around you. There are ways to uh, desalinate water uh, that don't require electricity and things like that. So I imagine there are ways that you could probably get around that, um, that probably will keep you alive longer than being in the desert. Yeah. I mean, probably for me, I think I'd go with the, the flood just because I'm a better fisherman than I am hunter. So <laughs> I feel like the food situation is probably a little bit easier to resolve, but they're both bad. I mean, everything you're saying about like the sun beating down and chap lips and stuff, that's the same if you're on a boat. <laughs> and and I, I feel like in some ways that, like I say, the, 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 the flood might be more psychologically torturous because you'd be so thirsty and you can't like drink any of the entire planet that's around you. Yeah. So, you know, fair enough. So yeah. I don't think that was the best question, but for bonus points, your answer or a nuclear winter? Uh, water. <laughs> I'll go winter. Ooh, like why winter? I'll go winter just because I don't mind being cold. It's fine. As Well, okay. I assu- like I would assume if I don't have the proper gear, I would just die really quickly. Like I, you would just. Well, die. that's true. That's true in all three cases, though. Yeah. Yeah, fair, but I, f- I feel like actually a winter death, like a, a cold hypothermia death. Oh, actually, no, because hypothermia is that's rough. That's rough. Of time. <laughs> I've watched the thing. That. No, I, I would go winter just because I, I like winter. I'm weird like that. I mean, it's certainly <laughs> the prettiest option of the three, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> nice. It's a nice time. <laughs> and there's more, there's more darkness, too. So there's shade because it's dark. Anyways, my question, <laughs> uh, the original one that I had come up with um, included a bit of the ending for the rovers. So 
over the course of this episode, I've had to rethink a new one. <laughs> but I actually think I'm a bit happier with this one. So it, this is kind of coming from our conversation about Guy Pierce and Brad Pitt that sent us on a bit of a, a bit of a tangent. But and also um, our discussions about Pattinson as an actor in his career. My question is for you guys. Would you rather have Robert Pattinson's career or Guy Pierce's career if you are obviously an actor and all these things? So Pattinson has a massive franchise behind him, which you might want to forget it, but he's got some really cool stuff that came afterwards. And also he has the money from Twilight, but he's also incredibly recognizable. So he doesn't have very much um, privacy in his life, I would imagine. Guy Pierce, on the other hand, has been steadily working for decades and decades now. And I don't think he's one of those people that you would see on a street and automatically recognize. Like, I think that he would have some semblance of a life, um, but has never been like we were saying. He's never kind of achieved the heights of the Brad Pitts and, and that kind of thing. So which of those two would you rather? Matthew? Uh, Pierce, hands down. Pierce? Yeah. Dakota? That's that's actually really tricky because I think I think you raise good points for both of them and and my instinct is to say Pattinson because I really like the fact that you have directors who are basically throwing themselves at him in in like the weird directors you know the weird directors probably mm-hmm. would, would love to have any number of movie stars star in their project but they know that they're off limits they know that you know. Tom Cruise is never going to do a small indie movie again. Like he, he's just past that where Pattinson can be the Batman and be in, you know, huge blockbuster movies, but still want to work with the Safties and want to work with Robert Eggers and things like that. And they can go up to them and be like, Hey, I got a movie for you. And he's like, great. Don't tell me anymore. I'm in sort of thing. And so I sort of appreciate his line of thinking. I love the, the the concept of Guy Pierce just being able to steadily work and kind of chameleon himself into roles. But uh, I'm going to say Pattinson. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my answer, Pierce, because, you know, he doesn't have the weight of Twilight behind him, but he's in the MCU, so he does have a franchise. And he, I think, has taken more interesting roles. Not Not to say that Pattinson is a not taking interesting roles. I just think that Pierce has a long history of doing interesting things. I mean, one of his earliest credits is Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Uh, And, you know, his big break was LA Confidential, which is one of my all-time favorites, despite, um, you know, problematic Um, (laughs) co-stars. And, you know, stuff, you know, for every, when you look through his filmography for every, Iron Man 3 or The Count of Monte Cristo, there's also, or the LA Confidential, there's also uh, a Ravenous and a Memento. Um, and, you know, The Hurt Locker, which he's in for like 30 seconds, but he steals every second he's in it. Um, or even stuff like The King's Speech, again, where he's in it for like five minutes total, maybe, but he's so effective in that five minutes that. He's for me, he's one of the most memorable parts of that whole movie. Um, and then he also finds the time to do really dumb, fun stuff like Lockout, aka Escape from Space, Escape from New York, plus Taken in Space. You know, it's uh, he has a he has the more, and it's not fair because he's been working for longer, but he definitely has the more interesting career. And so I'm definitely sticking with Pierce as my answer. Fair enough, Rachel. What about you, Guy Pierce? Um, 
kind of for reasons you guys you said Matthew but also I think we match up their careers considering that Pattinson is younger um and so presume like my assumption would be if he continues on the trajectory that he's on is that his filmography will be just as impressive and just as interesting as Guy Pierce's when he reaches the same age whatever mm-hmm. but to me the biggest difference is is I would absolutely crumble under the amount of attention that Pattinson gets probably on a day-to-day basis. And I wouldn't be able to handle that. And I always love actors like Guy Pierce, Sam Rockwell's another one who I feel like they work all the time. They are very steadily making a lot of pages. So they're very comfortable, I'm sure in their life. Um, and they do good work and they're very much so respected by their peers. They're respected by critics, by fans, like, but yet they get completely left alone and they can have their own life as well. Um, so I would choose Guy Pierce just on that basis alone. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Okay. So I guess it's now my turn. So I personally found Robert Patton's accent very hard to understand. <laughs> so would you rather sit down to have a conversation with Pattinson's Ray or another equally hard to understand character and actor we've mentioned many times in this episode – Brad Pitt's Mickey from Snatch. Uh, hmm. My answer to this question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, and I don't want the weird one, but like, I don't actually have too much of a hard time with either accent. I think Pattinson's is easier, but I tend to be, you know, I, I tend to be the one who like, if I can listen to someone talk for long enough, I can figure out what they're saying. Like, you've, have you seen you've seen Hot Fuzz, right? You know, there's like the there's that one joke where there's like the old countryman who needs the other old countryman yeah. who needs Nick Frost to translate. I can understand all three of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, I feel like I'm gonna go with Mickey. I'm gonna go with Brad Pitt's Mickey, and the reason for that is I feel like he's probably, and I don't mean this is a slight, but he's as a more intelligent human, he's probably more interesting, <laughs> even though he's probably trying to sell me something that I don't need or is broken. <laughs> Fair enough. Rachel, what about you? Um, I'm similar to Matthew actually, in that I don't find too many accents difficult to decipher. I've always chalked that up for me as living in a house where not only English was spoken growing up, like, um, and a, a, a lot of my family, of course, as well. And so I find that when you kind of have a dual language, your brain is able to figure that out a little bit better. Because I actually think deciphering accents, you just need patience. That's all. And if you have that patience and that tolerance, you, you can figure it out. Like if they're speaking English, you're okay. Like you just need to take some time, though, to 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 open your mind up to say, I'm going to try to understand this person. Um, but to answer your question, I would go with, uh, Mickey just because that is a more, and no offense to people in the South of America. Um, it is just a more, what's the word am I looking for? It's a nicer accent to listen to. It's like a bit softer. It's, you know, we kind of said earlier, like the sing song kind of Irish thing and, yeah, it's a bit more pleasant to the ear. That's that was the term I was looking for. Um, so I would go with Mickey as well. Awesome, great choice. I agree with the two of you, and I'm going to pick Mickey because uh, one, I like his dogs, and two, I imagine he'd uh, just be fun to hang around. Probably. 
I bet you. Yeah, I think he would be. Whatever party you were at when you were talking to would probably be the best party of your life. <laughs> probably. It would make a great story. Okay, so that wraps up our conversation on the Rover and our two games that we like to play. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you in your work? And is there anything you want to promote today? Uh, so first off, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, I hope uh, we can do it more frequently. Uh, people can find me uh, at probably the easiest way. All the links are at the website, which is awesomefriday.ca, or you can find the Awesome Friday podcast on whatever podcasting platform you happen to like. I've made sure we're on basically all of them. Just search for Awesome Friday podcast. Um, or you can find me. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter at AF. Well, I will make sure to link to your show and your Twitter accounts. Yeah, and I don't have anything in particular to promote, um, but please listen to the show. We would greatly appreciate it. We love all of you. Bye. Um, <laughs> it's, but uh, it's a great we are. Show and Rachel's sometimes on it. I know, and yeah. she makes it better every time. Um, sorry, Simon. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say that uh, I don't know that I know this episode is going to be a little bit delayed, but we did. Uh, both of us just got approved for accredited for the Vancouver International Film Festival. So there will be some festival coverage coming up at the end of September of this year uh, and beginning of October. So we're both pretty excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure our uh, our VIF paths will cross uh, at some point. I mean, we'll make sure of it. So, yes, they will. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, Rachel, where can people find you in more of your work? And do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, it's rachelkh.com and Twitter is underscore rachelkh. I think by the time this episode goes out, it, TIFF will be done. So it's just a lot of TIFF stuff, really. No offense to the VIF. VIF will be later. But TIFF is first, so and it's bigger and better because it's Toronto. And... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it'll just be a bunch of TIFF coverage, um, reviews, and some interviews uh, that are going to go out, including one that will be on ContraZoom, so, or a couple that will be on ContraZoom. But yeah, so that that's what I got going on. That is now in the past, so I'm sure people yeah. have listened to that by now. <laughs> uh, but yes, thank you so much. And you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you have seen the rover, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you like listening to the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.